Let's have Greg Kokel. Come on up, Greg. So, Greg, it was really fun to interview you on the radio. And did you have any thin sliced pizza tonight, or you no? I you had didn't. a piece of halibut. You you were good. God bless you. <laughs> it wasn't halibut pizza either. It wasn't on crust or anything in fact, like that. Halibut and pizza don't belong in the same sentence. No, they don't. No. If you're going to have halibut, you might as well just pretend like you're being healthy. God bless you. Thanks for being here, Greg. Thank you, Mike. I'd like to start out by making a prediction. I sometimes say a prophecy, but I'm not a prophet, so I'm just going to make a prediction. It's not a thus saith the Lord. However, it's one that I have a lot of confidence in. It's because of what people have said to me after they have engaged the kind of material that we're going to talk about this evening. The prediction is that some of you are going to be looking back on this evening, January 26, 2020, and you're going to say, that is the evening that everything changed for me. For me. In other words, that was the evening where you gained a different perspective about how to engage your friends and your families and your co-workers for the cause of Christ in a way that was effective, in a way that was friendly, in a way that was relaxed and safe for you. And because of that, because of the tools that I introduced you here, uh, to you here tonight, you are able to go out and make a difference. Now, why can I say that kind of thing in a group of people I really don't know? It's because I have heard that from so many people who even sat through a 45-minute or a one-hour session like this. Never mind an all-day conference, and we do that sometimes, but just in 45 minutes to an hour, the kinds of tools that they receive, if they put them into play, make all the difference. And there's a little rule that's guiding this, and that is, if you don't do it, it don't work, all right? And part of the reason is that I want to provide you something that maybe you're missing. I do a lot of apologetics conferences, and uh, they're great because they're, all the smart people come out and give their ideas and give their lectures and do their sessions, and we sit there in the audience and we take notes. And one thing I've discovered from these events is there isn't a challenge that faces Christianity that we don't have somebody that's addressed in a powerful and a persuasive way. I mean, we have a very deep bench, and it's really good. But oftentimes, there's something missing in these conferences. And what's missing is a bridge from the content to the conversation, or from the uh, scholarship to the relationship, okay? How do you get all that good stuff you've learned at church on Sunday? or in the evenings at a conference series, or at a conference you might spend on a weekend, or the books that you read, or YouTube things that you watch. Where do you, how do you get that good stuff into play in a conversation in a relaxed way that doesn't put you at risk and doesn't make you look weird, okay? In a way that looks more like, let's say, uh, diplomacy than D-Day. And that's what I want to give you this evening, okay? I want to give you a thumbnail sketch of what that looks like. So I hope you're going to take notes because I'm going to give you some good things here that you want to jot down. And as you're getting prepared to do that, I, I, uh, I want to say something that you probably don't expect a guy like me to say. I'm going to say a couple of things like that tonight. And that is whenever I get in a conversation with somebody that I hope will lead to spiritual matters, 
I never have it as a goal to lead that person to Christ. In fact, I don't even have it as a goal necessarily in that conversation to get to the gospel. Now, do I want that person to become a Christian? Absolutely. Is the gospel necessary for that? Absolutely. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But I became a Christian in an era, the Jesus movement of the uh, 70s here in Southern California, where the way we did evangelism then is largely the way we do it now. We go out, it's an event, we talk to people, we try to share the simple gospel with them and get them to sign on the dotted line and hope we close the deal. And back then, 50 years ago, that wasn't that hard because the Holy Spirit was doing a work and the mentality of the culture was very different than it is now. But times have changed. For one, the gospel is not simple anymore. I mean, the gospel is still the gospel, obviously. But when we communicate the simple gospel, the people who hear it recognize religious language they don't understand the words. In fact, to a large degree, they're words that bug them because it is, it's associated with something that strikes them as narrow-minded and intolerant, okay? So that's one problem. There's another problem, and that is there's a lot of objections that people have nowadays to Christianity that they didn't have before. A lot of the standard ones, perennial ones, problem of evil, why is Jesus the only way, etc., etc. But in the last 10 and 15 years, a whole new raft of things have come into play, and the culture has gotten more hostile to Christianity, and they express it through these kinds of challenges that they offer, and the challenges are getting harder. And the third reason I don't go right to the gospel, and I don't teach that, I don't encourage other people to do that, I'll give an alternate in just a little bit, is because if I told you I'd give you a game plan that will allow you to kind of get to the dotted line part of the presentation, and a lot of people are going to sign on that because this is really a nifty way of doing it. You're going to listen to what I say, you're going to take notes, and you're going to say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and then you're not going to do it. And I'll tell you why you're not going to do it. Because the idea of pressing someone in a conversation to that particular place just sounds like fighting words nowadays. It just makes you uncomfortable. And so you're just going to sit on the bench and not be involved. Okay? I began reading in John chapter 4 a number of years ago and saw something there that I had never seen before that really has changed my perspective on this whole enterprise that we now call evangelism. We have always called evangelism. And in John chapter 4, you know, Jesus talks to the woman of the well, and then she goes off to Sychar to tell everybody her encounter with Jesus, and the disciples are off getting food. They come by, and Jesus says to the disciples, you are about to reap where you did not sow. You are about to reap where you did not sow. In other words, you're coming in here, somebody else did the heavy lifting, you're going to get the low-hanging fruit. Notice, though, when Jesus says this, he's identifying something really important. He's identifying one field. In that case, it was Sychar. But he's identifying two seasons and two types of workers. The two seasons are the sowing season and the reaping season. And there are sowers and there are reapers. One field, one team, two seasons, and two types of workers. Now, I want you to think about a, a sentence. It's like an aphorism. It's just like a pithy saying 
that is very obviously true, and it seems almost overly simplistic, but it could transform the way you engage if you let it sink in. And here is that statement. I want you to write it down if you're making, taking notes. It, before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of, let's just call it gardening, okay? Before there can be any harvest, you always have to have a season of gardening. And by the way, that's always been the case. Francis Schaeffer in the 80s, when he wrote about this, he called it pre-evangelism. It's very difficult for somebody to become a Christian right away. Sometimes it happens. They get the message, they hear it, bang, they're in. But most people take a little time to think about it. This is a total transformation of your thinking about the world. It's a total transformation about the way you live your life. And you're being, being invited to embrace that. Wait a minute, I want to think about it a little bit, and that's a good thing. And in my case, even in the 70s, there were months and months of me knocking things around and thinking about it. And nowadays, I think that period of gardening in people's lives is much, much longer usually. Okay? Now, in 1973, on September 28th, when I became a follower of Christ, on that night, my brother Mark, who had been doing the gardening in my life, up until that point, largely, there were other people too, he came to visit my apartment uh, on Friday night, and he starts sharing the Lord with me again, and I told him, Mark, you don't have to tell me about Jesus anymore, I've already decided I want to become a Christian. It took me about 15 minutes to peel him off the ceiling, and then I prayed a prayer to follow Jesus. But I want you to notice something. That night, my fruit was ripe, and it didn't take any effort at all to harvest it. When the fruit is ripe, you bump into it, and it falls into the bucket. It's that simple. The hard work is not in the harvesting. The hard work is in the gardening. And as I thought about this concept, and about what Jesus said there in John chapter 4, and I looked at my own life, I realized I'm a gardener. What I do on the radio and what I do in my writings and public presentations in churches or at universities, wherever it is that I'm going, what am I doing? I'm gardening. Now I'm going to tell you something that's going to really shock you. I have not prayed with someone to receive Christ in over 30 years. What a loser! What have I been doing for all that time? I've been what? Gardening. And I want to tell you something, by the way. You ever hear of a guy named J. Warner Wallace? Cold case detective, Torrance PD, never lost a case. Atheist, hardcore atheist, never lost a case that went to trial. He was a great detective. Four of his cases were on TV. He was that good. And then he started using his detective skills to examine the Gospels as eyewitness testimonies, and he was so compelled by what he found, he left his atheism behind and became a follower of Christ, and then he wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, which is a best-selling apologetics book, and then he wrote another one called God's Crime Scene, which is a best-selling book, and he wrote another one called Forensic Faith, also doing really well. Jim Wallace was in my garden. He was listening to my show when he was still an atheist. Ever hear of a guy named Abdu Murray, former Muslim, now Christian? 
became a speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and now he's the executive vice president. Abdu Murray was in my garden. He was listening to my show when he was still a Muslim. Now, I'm not trying to, trying to draw attention to me. I'm trying to help you to see a dynamic. Because I'm gardening. I didn't pray with these guys to receive Christ. You know what happened? Somebody went into my garden. <laughs> and they harvested my fruit. Get out of my garden. Is that my attitude? No. Do I care? No. Jesus says in John chapter 4, says that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. We're all on the same team. We do different things. I think, frankly, that there are probably a whole lot more gardeners on the team than there are harvesters, because the harvesting is easy when the gardening is done properly. And most of our gardeners are sitting on the bench because all they have at their disposal is a harvesting tool. And consequently, if we don't garden properly, the harvest is not going to be as good. And so, what I'd like to do tonight is I want to give you a gardening tool. And here's the promise. I made the prediction. Now here's the promise. I am going to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know, or how knowledgeable, or aggressive, or even obnoxious the other person happens to be. This is a game plan that trades on something that Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Mark that down. I'll tell you what it says, but mark the verse down. You can check it out later. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. And here's what Paul says there. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, okay? Making the most of the opportunity. Great. He says, starts out by saying, be smart. Good. Then he says, let your speech always be with grace seasoned, as it were, with salt, okay? So he's, he says, first be smart, then he says, be nice. <laughs> what a concept. And then he closes by saying this, so that you know how to respond to each person. So that you know how to respond to each person. So he says, be smart, then he says, to be nice, then he says, be tactical. That is, treat people as individuals, respond to the individual set of circumstances that the person is in. And the game plan that I'm going to offer you tonight, that I'm going to sketch out for you, does each of those things. Now, at standard reason, um, we have many tactics. And uh, these are maneuvers that are meant to keep you in the driver's seat of a conversation. It doesn't mean you're doing most of the talking. Actually, you're not. The other person often is doing more of the talking. But the maneuvers allow you to guide the conversation in the direction you want it to go. I want to give you an example of how that, ha how, how, how that happened in my life. It, uh, when I was in northern Wisconsin about, well, now it was over 10 years ago. I mean, I've had lots of occasions like this, but this one stands out as a good one to offer to you um, as an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, we have a place in northern Wisconsin that's been, I grew up in Chicago and it's been in our family for years and so when I was a kid I used to go up there and summer up there and I love to go fishing and I still like to fish but I don't get to do it very often. But I'm a bass fisherman and up there when I'm in the north I fish for smallmouth bass. And I went out once with a local pastor and on that day I caught the largest smallmouth bass of my life. It was four pounds, two ounces. 
That's a pretty big smallie for that neck of the woods. And I got a snap of that, a picture of that. And I, I, I wanted to get it digitized so I could show it up on the screen the following Sunday at this pastor's church where I was going to be teaching, okay? And so I got the film from him. Film. <laughs> F-I-L-M. Film. <laughs> to be um, developed <laughs> so I could get this digitized and show it on the screen. Young lady that was uh, helping out at the kiosk there, she had a large pentagram around her neck. Pentagram is a five-pointed star. It's often a occultic symbol, not always, but frequently. And it was big, so I thought it was a statement. So I asked her, I said, does that jewelry have religious significance? She said, yes, it does. The five points stand for earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. Now, the wells are going off in my head a little bit. Now I'm recognizing what's going on. But then I asked her, I said, to kind of narrow down a little bit, I, I said, what I'm curious about is whether it has religious significance for you personally. I mean, some people wear crosses and it's just jewelry to them, right? And, uh, and she said, yes, it does. I'm a pagan. Now, I'm a trained professional, right? So I'm just taking all this in. But my wife is standing next to me. And so when this gal describes herself as a pagan, my wife is caught by surprise and she starts to laugh. And then she catches herself and says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude, but I never heard anybody admit it before. You know, <laughs> she'd only heard the word pagan when her, her girlfriends would call their kids and get in here, you bunch of pagans, you know, that kind of thing. Well, the lady wasn't uh, offended at all. She went on to explain a little bit about her view. And, and uh, as she's explaining it, I realize that I'm talking to a witch. And so I asked her, are you Wiccan? She said, yes, I am. We respect all life, is what she said, offering me a major tenet of Wiccan theology. And I said, oh, well, that's great. If you respect all life, that would probably make you pro-life with regards to the abortion question. Is that right? And she said, no, I'm, I'm actually pro-choice. I said, really? That, that surprises me. Aren't most witches pro-life? She said, yeah, it is a little bit odd. But, um, and then she says this. She said, I know I could never do that, referring to abortion. I could never kill a baby. Now, at Stand to Reason, we have training material about abortion. And in that material, we, we make the case that abortion takes the life of an innocent human being without proper justification, maybe killing if you like, but that is the language we use. We don't want people to sound, use loaded sound and language to make their case. We got a good case. We don't have to do that. Okay, but in this case, it's not me, the pro-lifer, who's calling abortion baby killing. It is the pro-choicer who's identified abortion as killing babies. And guess what? I'm paying attention. So as we continue this conversation, am I going to talk any more about abortion? No, I'm going to talk about what? Baby killing. She said, you know, I, could, I would never do that. I, I could never kill a baby. And then she gives the reason why. She said, I wouldn't want something bad to come back on me. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Isn't that kind of an odd reason not to kill a baby? I'm not going to kill any babies. I, you never know what's going to happen to you when you do that. <laughs> Maybe we should just not kill babies, regardless. Anyway, I didn't pursue that. I, I went in a little different direction with her. I said, well, maybe you won't kill babies, good. <laughs> but maybe we should stop other people from killing babies. And she said, well, I think people ought to have a choice. Now, what is the choice we're talking about here? Explicitly, the choice to what? 
kill babies. And so I asked her that. I said, do you, you mean people should have the choice to kill babies? And she said, well, I think all things should be taken into consideration. I said, okay, tell me what a legitimate consideration it would be, would be to uh, justify killing a baby. And she immediately said, um, incest. Okay. Now, I want you to step back for a moment and think about what's going on here. We're having a conversation about the abortion question. And what she is doing is just trotting out all of the standard kind of abortion slogans, except for she has already identified abortion as baby killing, and therefore all the slogans for the ambiguous abortion are now explicitly slogans defending killing babies. And it's starting to sound a little bit weird, but she doesn't hear it because she's just trotting out slogans. Okay? Now, this happens all the time. You're going to hear people give these statements that they do not think about. They are used to just trotting these things out and saying them, and, the, and, and that stonewalls the Christian. Incidentally, Christians do the exact same thing with their religious lingo and slogans as well. We let slogans do the work of conversation, and so therefore there's no conversation. But in this case, I'm paying attention, okay? And uh, this, this, so I asked her, I said, let, let, me, let me see if I uh, understand you, because she said incest was a legitimate reason to kill a baby. I said, if I have a two-year-old here standing next to me, or a one-year-old, or a six-month-old, who had been conceived by incest, according to your view, if I understand it correctly, then I should be allowed to kill this baby. Is that right? Now, that question stopped her in her tracks, because she had never thought about that before. And she's thinking about it. And finally she says, I'd have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, at least they're mixed, right? And she says this as a concession to me, right? Um, now I realize that the, the line is growing behind me now, right? And I am now interfering with her work product. And I realize that my opportunity as an ambassador for Christ has come to an end. Now, if I had been a, a different way of thinking about this inner, spiritually uh, interactive moment, I might have thought, well, hey folks, I haven't got to the gospel. Sit down, shut up, maybe you learned something. Now, where was I kind of thing. But I was not under any pressure to artificially, especially in this case, get to the gospel, the shoehorn, this, some little spiritual gospel words into a conversation where they simply didn't fit. I was free to follow the circumstances that the Lord offered me at that moment. You know, according to the need of the moment and the need of that person, just like Paul said in Colossians. So that we know how to respond to each person. And in that situation, it wasn't a gospel moment. Now some of you might be thinking, well, do you ever get to the gospel? When do you get to the gospel in your system? I said, here's, here's my answer. I get to the gospel whenever I want. Now, I know it sounds a little cheeky, but my point is, I, get to the, I have the freedom to make the best assessment that I can make in a circumstance to know when to put the gospel or a portion of it into a conversation. Jesus did not get to the gospel in every conversation. In fact, he rarely got to the gospel. I've had people that tell me before they were Christians, they heard the Gospels were good news, and they read the Gospel, and they said, I didn't see any good news. I saw a lot of bad news. You read the Sermon on the Mount, ooh, this is a great thing that Jesus did, the greatest sermon, best ethical teaching in the world. This is the most condemning ethical teaching in the world. 
It's filled with bad news. You don't murder? Good. You call your brother a few fool? You're going to hell. Oh, you haven't committed adultery? Great. Don't even think about it. On and on. You are to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus dumped half the gospel, the bad news part, on people all the time to let it sit on them and let them feel the force of it. So I don't feel compelled to get to the gospel all the time. I'll give the parts of the message that I think, in my best judgment, in the moment, that's all we can do, trusting the Lord, that I think are going to be the best acts of gardening in the life of that person at the moment. And because now I have, I have, a, a, di- I, I have a different approach to the enterprise, I have a different goal too. Before the goal was to get, get to the end, get to the gospel, sign on the dotted line if you could. It's not my goal anymore. My goal in any conversation is always the same. And when I speak before a non-Christian audience, university, whatever, and I've spoken to more than 85 universities around the country and other parts of the world, I always start now the same way. And here's the way I start. I say, I'm here tonight because my life has been changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And 46 years ago when I was a student at UCLA, I began to think about the claims that Jesus made about himself and about the world and the claim he made on my own life. And as I thought about it and uh, talked about it and asked a lot of questions and pushed back and argued whatever, I finally came to the conclusion that Jesus got it right, that he saw the world the way it really was and that the smart money was on him. And so I came in behind him and I decided to follow him for the rest of my life. And I've been doing that and it's not been easy, just saying. But it's been reality. But I tell the audience, I'm not here tonight to convert you, okay? I'm not in harvest mode is what I'm saying, right? I tell them I have a more modest goal. I just want to put a stone in your shoe. That's all I want to do. I just want to annoy you a little bit in a good way. And, of course, they all start laughing when I say, because they expect the Christian to annoy them. I say, okay, I'm your guy. But you'll thank me, hopefully, when I'm done, because you'll be walking out of here with something digging at you, something that has gotten you thinking. Because I tell them, I think Jesus of Nazareth is worth thinking about. And then I go into my material, whatever it happens to be. And if I could just get them thinking, if I could just do a little bit, if I could do a little gardening, a little watering, a little hoeing, a little weeding, or whatever it is that's needed in that moment, I'm a happy camper. I don't have to swing for the fences. I don't even have to get on base. I just want to get into the batter's box. That's all I want to do. Do a little bit here and a little bit there. And that's been my method for decades now. And since I've been doing that, my life and my effectiveness have been more productive in people's lives than it ever was before. In fact, when I give a talk like this, it is frequently the case, and it happened last week, Wednesday night, that someone will come up to me afterwards and say, I was in your garden before I was a Christian, and now they love the Lord. Why? Because there are other teammates that were in play too. So this engagement with the witch of Wisconsin is an illustration of how the tactical game plan works out in my life. I want you to notice something about that conversation. In that conversation, I asked nine 
different questions. I use questions to start the conversation. I use questions to clarify particular things. I use questions to gather more information. I even used a question to exploit what I thought was a weakness or a flaw in her view. That's when I trotted out the toddler, so to speak. And, um, and we were relaxed the entire time. Now, in my notes, it, it used to say, and she was doing most of the work, you know. Then I looked at my notes, I thought, well, if she was doing most of the work, that means I was doing some of the work, and I wasn't doing the some of the work, I was doing none of the work. Because I was relaxed. No problem. So I changed my notes, and I said, she was doing all the work. Then I realized, wait a minute, she wasn't working either. There was no lines drawn in the sand. We weren't protecting turf. We didn't have our dukes up. We wouldn't have an argument. This was a friendly, relaxed conversation. And that's the way I want it. For me and for you. That is the power of the tactical game plan. Now, I made reference a few moments ago that at Standard Reason we have different tactics with different names. Um, there are names like suicide and taking the roof off and just the facts, ma'am, and inside out and uh, sticks and stones and what a friend we have in Jesus. And these are all different maneuvers that can help you position yourself effectively in a conversation and, 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 and make, make a difference in the other person's life. But there is one tactic that is really the, um, it's, it's the central tactic that is, is, it defines the game plan. All right? It's the simplest tactic imaginable to stop a challenger in their tracks, to turn the tables, and to get them thinking. And, and, and at the same time, to put you in the driver's seat of the conversation, because that's where you want to be. This isn't about manipulation. This isn't about control. This is about managing the conversation so it goes in the direction that you think is best. And this particular tactic, which is the core of the game plan, has a name, and the name of the tactic is Columbo, as in the infamous Lieutenant Columbo of ancient TV. Like, I'd I, I say like 20 years ago, and then my staff said, no, it was more like 50 years ago. Time is passing. But you know what? I don't, there's not a country I go to where people don't know who Columbo is, except for sometimes in the United States. You know, he's the guy who shows up at the crime scene wearing one of these coats like this. Looks like he slept in it. I got mine at uh, Salvation Army. My wife told me, she said, whenever you get something at the Salvation Army, you always want to check the pockets because you never know what you're going to find. When you... Wait a minute, what's this? Oh my gosh, look at that! <laughs> cigar! Columbo's got a cigar, right? Now, this is just plastic, so no worries. I actually hate cigars, you know. Whenever I find a real cigar, I always destroy it by fire. All the way down. I don't want anybody to stumble, you know. He's also got a pad of paper like this. He can't use his pad of paper, though. Why can't he? He doesn't have a pen or pencil. You know, he's got to bum it off of somebody, you know. So this guy's not prepared. He's walking around the crime scene, scratching his head, muttering to himself. And this guy doesn't look like he can think his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, he's stupid. But he's stupid like a fox, right? Because he's got a method. And at some point, he's going to stop and put his fingers to furrow brow like he's deep in painful thought. And he's going to say something like this. I don't know. There's something about this thing that bothers me. <laughs> do, you, do you mind if I ask you a question? Then he asks the question, right? He gets the answer back. You're very intelligent. Yeah. One more thing. And then he one more 
stings them to death, right? With question after question after question. And pretty soon they start getting frustrated with him. And he, said, he says, I'm sorry, it's because I'm asking all these questions, but I can't help it. It's a habit. And this is a habit that you need to get into. Because the key to the Colombo tactic is the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions to advance the conversation. So write that down. I'll say it again for you. The Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions to advance the conversation. Okay? Now, there are three parts to the game plan which is designed to use Columbo-like questions to move you forward in your conversation with others, allowing you to make progress, but also providing a tremendous amount of safety for you at the same time. Now, we have a limited amount of time tonight, so I can only do the first two steps. I might hint at the third step. It's more advanced. But the first two steps are all we need for me to fulfill my promise. It's the kind of thing that you can do right away and will allow you to get kind of into the shallow end of the pool and test these things out and get used to them making progress even though you're not taking on any risk. Because as you'll see, you're not going to be preaching. You're not going to be making any claims. You're not going to be advancing the gospel at this point. But you will, I promise you, you will, as you use these first two steps, be making a difference. Okay? So let me tell you what the first step of the game plan is. And I want you to understand this first step correctly. We got a Super Bowl coming up, right? Or is it over with? No, it's still over. Okay. I don't follow these things, so I don't know. Are the Patriots in it? Oh, well, forget about it. We got a California team, though, so 49ers, I guess. I don't know. But, so, these guys are training. These guys are strategizing. They're doing everything to get ready for the game. They've got the big picture. They know how they're going to prosecute their game to hopefully win the game. But when they get on the line, when they get ready to go, are they thinking about the last touchdown? If they are, they're not going to be thinking about what they're supposed to do right now. They're distracted by that. No, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about this play right now perfection. Get it done, get it right, then the next play, get it done, get it right, then the next day, and if you execute the pieces properly, the end takes care of itself, at least in principle. That's the same thing I want you to be thinking about here. So when I say the first step of the game plan, I do not want you thinking about leading someone to Christ. That's the end, and it may not even be in your lifetime. I want you to be thinking about one thing and one thing only, and here is that one thing, the first step of the game plan. I want you to gather information. That's it. All I want you to do is gather information. You've got to figure out what the lay of the land is with the person you're talking with. And this is something almost no Christian does. Now, I was sitting on the airplane next to a guy named John. I take a lot of flights, fly around quite a bit. And I got to talking with John, and in my case, we were, and I'm using my game plan. I'm drawing him out with questions. We're talking back and forth, being friendly. He asked me what I'm doing. I know his name because I asked him. I told him I was going to an event like this, and I explained that a little bit, so he knows I'm a Christian. And then he tells me, I'm not a Christian. Is that important for me to know? Good. 
Then he says, nobody I know is a Christian. Okay. Then he says, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore. Oh, is that valuable information for me to know? Sure. Then he says, actually, I used to be a preacher's kid. I said, John, how'd you used to be a preacher's kid? Did your dad die? He said, no, my dad didn't die. He's just no longer a preacher anymore. Oh, okay. And he's no longer a Christian. Oh, is that valuable information for me to know? Do you think there's any baggage sitting here next to me on the airplane? Can you imagine if I would have jumped into my little gospel presentation? How would he have responded? I've been there, I've done that, and it hurt. But that isn't what I did. I drew him out with questions. I, 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 I heard his story. I found out what was going on in his life. I listened, and I did not react. And when he got well into his enterprise here, telling me the sad story of his experience with Christians and the church, he said, you know, people like you. <laughs> Moi? <laughs> people like you, when are usually really angry when I tell them what I just told you. But you're not mad at me. And I appreciate that. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think it's just possible that the fact that I listened without reacting might have put a stone in his shoe? What do you think? Sure, absolutely. You have no idea what the Holy Spirit is going to do as you begin using this game plan. I have some idea because of my experience with it and what people have told me. Now I'm going to give you a question. It's a model question that will allow you to get, gather information, all right? Effectively, that's the first step of a game plan. And that question is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Or some variation. When I started the conversation with the witch of Wisconsin, I saw the jewelry and I said, what do you mean by that jewelry, right? Does that jewelry have religious significance? And so that allowed me to get into a conversation with the witch that had some interesting turns to it. And I trust, I don't know what happened to her. I never saw her again. That, that kiosk is no longer there. But what I did is I did what I could with the opportunity that God gave me, and then I leave the rest to him. Because that young lady, God bless her, was my task for the moment, but she's God's problem. She was my task, but she, God is the one that cares more about her than I do. He's the one who's going to watch over her and bring others in. I'm just doing my part as I'm able, and then I move on. Being alert for the circumstances. Here with John, I gathered some information. I found out some things. By the way, just so you know, when I got off that plane, I had his email address in my pocket. That's trust, right? He had, said some, he had raised an issue about um, the Bible being changed over time, and I said, well, I actually wrote an article about that. Um, would you like to see it? He said, sure. I said, where shall I send it? Gave me his email address. So I got to my whole that hotel that, that night. I, I sent him the article. Next morning, I got a response. Thanks a lot. It was the last I ever heard of him. Well, didn't you, didn't you try to get back with him? No. This guy's already had bad experiences with Christians. I had a good talk with him, left on good terms, I was able to send him an article, and guess what? He's got my email. If he wants to talk more, he'll contact me. No pressure. See the point? So the first step is to gather information. 
and you want to use some form of the question, what do you mean by that, in order to move forward. Now, this question is especially important if you're already in, if you're engaged in some kind of spiritual conversation, like I do Q&A at the university, and people raise objections, these objections are filled with ambiguities. And it's really important for me to understand well enough to answer the question for them to clarify the particular things they're talking about. And so here, I had a, a, a student come to me once and said, I have a friend at the university who told me everything's relative. So how do I answer that argument is what the Christian said. I said, well, it's not an argument, first of all, it's just a point of view. Secondly, um, I wrote a book on relativism. It's called Relativism. <laughs> so I know what relativism is, but I would never jump into a discussion about relativism with this person who says everything's relative. That would not be tactically wise. I'd be talking at that person, and they get bored and fall asleep or leave, right? Instead, I said, you should ask him a what? What do you think? A question. And what question might you use? What do you mean by that? In this particular case, what do you mean by relative? What do you mean by relative? Everything's relative. Really? What do you mean by relative? Now, I don't know if they're going to be able to answer it or not. There's a lot of people, all they're going to do is just repeat it. Uh, what I mean is, I mean it's all relative. Yeah, I heard that for the first time. I want to know what you mean. Can you explain that to me? And, uh, and then I'll see. But you will be amazed, I'm just saying, you will be amazed at how often you ask somebody to clarify their point of view and you get what I call, and by the way, here's a 60s alert. So this is my period back then. I'm still stuck there. I actually still say groovy once in a while. So back in 1966, this great duo called Simon and Garfunkel. My 15-year-old daughter asked for a Simon and Garfunkel t-shirt for Christmas. I went, oh, honey. Oh, that's so sweet. And then she wanted to see that Prince movie, so that went out the door. <laughs> they wrote this song called The Sounds of Silence. And a lot of times when you ask the question, what do you mean by that, you're going to get Simon and Garfunkel. By the way, they're still alive. But they're really old. You get The Sounds of Silence. Because people have not thought about what they mean. And so you just write them out. And you are giving them an opportunity to clarify their own thinking. And there's a whole lot of objections or challenges to Christianity that get, get some traction simply because they're vague. And we're not going to let them do that. We're going to ask for clarification. What do you mean by that? Some form of that. Help me out. And once he explains, by the way, the person who said everything's relative, and he said, okay, I, I get it. Now I know what you mean by relative. All knowledge is perspectival or quote Nietzsche or something like that. Great. Okay, I get it. Now, but I have another question. You said that everything is relative, right? Yeah. What do you mean by, by everything? Oh, well, everything. That's easy. Everything means everything. Well, wait a minute. If everything means everything then everything's relative in that sense. Isn't the statement, everything's relative, part of everything? Right? So that would make your statement what? Relative to. Anybody see a problem with that? This is called the suicide tactic. It's trying to 
you know, squeeze its way in here. But see, I want to get clarification for this. And I'm going to ask question after question after question after question. I want to be a student of their view. I want them to explain really clearly to me, and as they're explaining, if there's any more ambiguities, then I want them to clear that up too before I'm going to go any further. Now, I'm just, I, I, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail on this. I want to get to some of your questions here in a little bit. But I, I, I just want you to see, I want you to just imagine how this can work for you. It is amazing when you just play the student in, in, a, in a, a, an honest one and a genuine one. It's not a trick. I want to know what they think. I want them to think about what they think. Because I think most ideas against Christianity are not good ones. I think there's some reasonable, understandable objections that have substance that need to be addressed, and I think can be. But a lot of the challenges to Christianity just turn out to be hot air.